It's um, <clears throat> non-stop party time at my house this weekend. Um, from Friday night till today at lunch, we will have 100, 100 people through our house. So my wife is living her best life, and I'm hanging on by the skin of my teeth. You could pray for me. This is the cost of having a growing church. So 100 people in our house this weekend, and Friday night was the first big event, and our house is packed for a cocktail party. You ever been to a cocktail party? You know what I'm talking about? People dress up nice. There's fancy food. There's some drinks. People are mingling. Cocktail parties. Some people love them. I'm learning. You know, I'm learning. I do my best. I get, psych myself up, I do what I can. Cocktail party on Friday night. You ever been to a cocktail party? Yes, not at me, show me your hand. You know what I'm talking about, right? Some of y'all aren't putting up your hand and you've been to cocktail parties at my house. All right, grandma is always at a cocktail. Wherever she is, there's a cocktail party going on. If you need a little pick-me-up, come see grandma. She lives right next door. Um, I love you, grandma. So, cocktail party. Conversation at cocktail party. What are the two questions you're always asked? First one, so what do you do? Now, for me, this has always been a downer, right? You're having a great conversation, people talking to you. So, what do you do? They think, cool-looking guy, nice-looking guy, friendly, articulate. What do you do? I'm a pastor. It's like, wah, wah, wah. (laughs) It's always been like this. From when I was a young man, I realized, oh, boy, this line of work that God's calling me into, not the most popular line of work ever. I learned this in grade 10 in high school. We had a music project, and we had to bring a song to kind of dissect in music class, and so any song we liked, so I brought a song that I liked, and it was my turn to present, so I stood up, and we played the song, and then I was like, so this is like a worship song that I love, and one of my friends, Eric, put his hand up right away. He's like, stop, what's worship? And I said, oh, okay, well, worship is kind of how we as God's people respond to him, and particularly so when we're in church, and he's like, what's church? So when I was in grade 10, my peers were saying, what is church? They didn't even know. And so I realized very early on that my life's calling was to see Jesus introduced to my peers in what had become, in the Canadian context, a radically post-Christian context. Our friends are post-Christian. Most of them are post-church. Many of them have never set foot inside a church. If you even suggest you get that weird kind of look, like, I don't know. And that's the look I always get when they ask me what I do for a living. What do you do? I'm a pastor. Some people don't even know what that is. Oh, what is that? Like, are you some kind of priest? Where's your robe? Okay, what do you do? People ask you that all the time at a cocktail party. What do you do? Where are you from? This one's a little better for me. I get to say, actually, I'm from Israel. I grew up in Israel. People go, really? Now, depending on where the party's held, that can also go badly, especially if there's a lot of liberals in the room. They're like... They just start about Israel and Palestine and Middle East conflict. And if they dare ask me about it, it's just a bad situation. See, I was raised in the Israeli school system, indoctrinated as an Israeli child. I'm as right of center as can be when it comes to my views of Israel. And so that means, oh boy, this is not going to be a very good party. What do you do? Where are you from? You find that people hardly ever ask you this one, though. Where are you going? That's a surefire conversation killer. If you want to leave the cocktail party, ask that question. Where are you going? See, no one wants to get too existential or deep at a cocktail party, right? Where are you going? Um, have you ever asked somebody that? Um, I'm not really sure. And if they're honest, they may follow that up with this. Uh, Why does it even matter? Why does it even matter where I'm going? Well, let me show you why it matters. This is Genesis 35. God said to Jacob, arise. Go to Bethel and dwell there. Make an altar there to the God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. 
So Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him, put away the foreign gods that are among you and purify yourselves and change your garments. Then let us arise and go up to Bethel so that I may make there an altar to the God who answers me in the day of my distress and has been with me wherever I have gone. So they gave to Jacob all the foreign gods that they had and the rings that were in their ears. The commentators aren't sure if the rings that were in their ears were the rings that were in Jacob's family members' ears or the rings that were actually in the idol's ears. But either way, all the gold rings got given to the patriarch. Uh, And Jacob hid them under the terebinth tree that was near Shechem. And as they journeyed, a terror from God fell upon the cities that were around them, so they did not pursue the sons of Jacob. And Jacob came to Luz, that is Bethel, which is in the land of Canaan, he and all the people who were with him. And there he built an altar and called the place El Bethel, because there God had revealed himself to him when he fled from his brother. And Deborah, Rebekah's nurse, died, and she was buried under an oak below Bethel, so, she called its na- so he called its name Alon Bahu, that means the crying tree. God appeared to Jacob again when he came from Padan Aram and blessed him. And God said to him, Your name is Jacob. No longer shall your name be called Jacob, but Yisrael, Israel, shall be your name. So he called his name Israel. And God said to him, I am God Almighty, be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you, and kings shall come from your own body. The land that I gave to Abraham and Isaac I will give to you, and I will give the land to your offspring after you. Then God went up from him in the place where he had spoken with him, and Jacob set up a pillar in the place where he had spoken with him, a pillar of stone. He poured out a drink offering on it and poured oil on it, so Jacob called the name of that place where God had spoken to him Bethel, the house of God. Then they journeyed from Bethel. When they were still some distance from Ephrath, Rachel went into labor, and she had hard labor. And when her labor was at its hardest, the midwife said to her, Do not fear, for you have another son. And as her soul was departing, for she was dying, she called his name Ben-Oni, but his father called him Ben-Yamin. So Rachel died, and she was buried on the way to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. And Jacob set up a pillar over her tomb. It is the pillar of Rachel's tomb, which is there to this day. Israel journeyed on and pitched his tent beyond the tower of Eder. When Israel lived in that land, Reuven, Reuben, his son, lay with Bilchah, his father's concubine, and Israel heard of it. Such a weird book, such a weird family. We'll get to it in a few minutes. Now, the sons of Jacob were 12. The sons of Leah, Reuven, Jacob's firstborn, Shimon, Levi, Yehuda, Issachar, and Zvulun. The sons of Rachel, Yosef, and Benjamin. The sons of Bilchah, Rachel's servant, Dan, and Naphtali. The sons of Zilpah, Leah's servant, Gad, and Asher. These were the sons of Jacob who were born to him in Padan Aram. And Jacob came to his father Isaac at Mamre, or Kiryat Arba, that is Hebron, Hebron, where Abraham and Isaac had sojourned. Now the days of Isaac were 180 years, and Isaac breathed his last, and he died, and was gathered to his people, old and full of days. And his sons Esau and Jacob buried him. So uh, here's your thesis out of uh, Genesis 35. It's a good one. It's been ringing in my ears all week. You are from Eden. You're going to Zion. So live like it. You're from Eden. You're going to Zion. So live like it. And I have six big ideas to kind of help you with this. Idea one, God speaks. Idea two, we respond. Idea three, God shows up and ups the ante. Idea four, we remember what God has done. Idea five, life goes on. Idea six, the next chapter begins. Section one, verse one. God said to Jacob, arise, Go to Bethel and dwell there. Make an altar there to the God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. How do I know that you are from Eden? Because, like Jacob, God speaks to you. Like Jacob, God talks to you. What is the first recorded word that uh, God spoke to the humans? Well, the first recorded word that God spoke to us is God speaking to Adam 
before Eve shows up. And it's recorded in Genesis 2, verses 16 through 17. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day you eat of it you shall surely die. So the first recorded words that God speaks to the humans is God commanding Adam to leave that tree alone. First word that God speaks. What is the second recorded word that God speaks to the humans. The second word, recorded word that God speaks to the humans is in Genesis 1.28. Be fruitful, now he's speaking to Adam and to Eve, and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. And if you think it's weird that the first word God spoke to Adam is recorded in Genesis 2, and the second word that God spoke to Adam is recorded in Genesis 1, it's because Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 are giving you very different perspectives of the creation account. Also, let's just say, because we're not biblical literalists here, that I don't actually think these are the first words that God spoke to Adam. He probably said, good morning, I love you, let's go for a swim, or something like that. Or, hi, you're the greatest, do you want some fruit? Or, hey buddy, take a look at them stars. I mean, I don't know, but I'm pretty sure God said some other things. But these are the first recorded words that God spoke to the humans. God speaks to you like he spoke to Jacob. That's how I know you're from Eden. Because in Eden, God is speaking to the humans. And here in Jacob's story, God is speaking to Jacob. You're from Eden. You're going to Zion. You want to live like it. Remember that God speaks. So have a relationship with him and listen. It's your first applicable point. You ever met somebody who says, God doesn't exist, I never see him. Next time someone says to you, God doesn't exist, I never see him, say, fair. And then say, but do you ever visit? And be like, can't say that I ever have. And you don't need to say anything else. They'll just plant the first seed of doubt in their heart and they'll go like, am I missing something? Hmm. Do you ever visit? The best way to have a relationship with God is to work on your relationship with God. How, how do I work on my relationship with God? I've been getting a lot of questions on this lately. I've been sharing my devotional life and discipline with uh, lots of people recently who are wanting to kind of get into their Bible. Um, and so I've referenced it, right? I talk about how I do it, but I haven't actually had my devotional Bible with me, so I thought I would bring it today and kind of show you how I do it. So this Bible here is my ESV, so this is my preaching Bible, and this is the second preaching Bible I've ever had in my life. I've been preaching full-time since I was 19, and I had to retire my original one, which was the New King James Version. All good Pentecostals, that's what we preach from. I'm fifth-generation Pentecostal on my dad's side, fourth-generation on my mom's. I'm sorry, but it's true, and we preach from the New King James. So that's my preaching Bible originally, but it's so beat up now that it had to be retired. It's all taped together, and there's no room to write on it anymore, so that one's retired. So then this is the ESV, so this is the one I preach from. And then this one is my devotional Bible. So this one is the NLT, the New Living Translation. Tom Ward gave it to me. He's a sweet old saint here at uh, Grace, and he gave this to me last year, and I've really been loving it. I never spent any time in the NLT. So I just want to show you how I do this. So you can see there's uh, some bookmarks. So the first bookmark here is my Old Testament bookmark. So I'm always reading through the Old Testament. So if you were to start this this week, you would start at Genesis chapter 1. And then you would read the next chapter, and then the next, and then the next, and then the next. So I can't go all the way back to one. It's too difficult. But there you see Genesis 35. And you'll see an arrow. So the arrow indicates the next day. So when I finish Genesis 35, I put an arrow at Genesis 36. You can see that Genesis 36 is very boring. 
See? There's nothing marked in it. So when you're going to do your devotions, always do it with a pen. I say if you're reading without a pen, you're reading for fun. But if you're reading for work, you read with a pen. So you just read one chapter in the Old Testament. So right now, I'm in Deuteronomy. And oh, you'll see this. See that star? When I put a star, you know something really jumped off the page at me. And look, that was pretty good there. Deuteronomy 2. So you make those notes. So you're always in the Old Testament. And then you have another bookmark that's in the New Testament. So if you were to start this tomorrow, you would start in Matthew chapter 1. But right now, I'm in 2 Corinthians chapter 6. So you can see that I read 2 Corinthians 5, which is a powerful chapter. Look, I underlined almost the whole thing. So I was in 2 Corinthians 5. And then on Monday, I'm going to start here in 2 Corinthians 6. So you keep reading through the New Testament. So you have that bookmark there. And then most Bibles have one of these ribbons in the middle. So you pin that ribbon in Psalms and Proverbs. So you can see here that I'm now in Proverbs 5. So on Monday, I'll read Proverbs 5. There's the arrow. So on Saturday, I read Proverbs 4. So um, you just keep reading through it. So you start in Psalms. So you start in Psalms and work your way through it. So there you can see Psalm 24 and then 25. See, the Psalms are great. See, the Psalms are always like, if you want God to speak to you, read the Psalms, okay? When you finish the Psalms, though, you start Proverbs, and you do one proverb a day. And then when you finish Proverbs, you start back over at Psalms. Okay, so you're always reading the Old Testament, always reading the New Testament, and always reading the Psalms and Proverbs. If you want to work on your relationship with God, read your Bible every day, and then, crucially, meditate on one thing. So I told you to have a pen so you can mark something, right? So if something jumps out at you, I want you to make a note of it. Again, if you want to practice this discipline. So when that happens to me, I always have a cue card, and I write it down. So this week, it was for the Lord your God has blessed you in everything you've done. He has watched you every step through this great wilderness, Deuteronomy 2.7. So I write it down, and then on the back, I write the application. And the application there is I need to change my mindset. I've been through a really difficult year, and I've been feeling a little bit like a loser, and like I've lost everything. And so I came to this passage this week, and I read that in the midst of this really incredibly difficult year where basically my whole self-image has been destroyed and is slowly being rebuilt again, I read, for the Lord your God has blessed you in everything you've done. He has watched your every step through this great wilderness. And I realized I've been thinking of myself like a victim, like a loser, and I need to change my mindset and start thinking of myself as someone whom the Lord has blessed in everything he's done. So you read the verse, it rocks your world, you write the application down, and then you put it in your pocket, and you carry it around with you all week. And the second something bad happens to you that's going to throw you off, you reach into your pocket and you grab it. And I really suggest you do it analog. Don't do it digital. The last thing you need is more time on a screen. Okay, do it analog, write it down, put it in your pocket, put it somewhere you're going to see it, Okay, and let the Word speak to you throughout the week. If you want to work on your relationship with God, read your Bible every day and meditate on one thing. Secondly, you can continue to worship the Lord. Keep coming to church. Keep singing to Jesus in worship. Keep hearing Jesus preached from Scripture in the gathered context with other people who are sharing the same kind of focus. I find church so encouraging. I found it to be that way my entire life. I started following Jesus when I was 11, and from 11 years of age until now when I'm 45, in church every single week, I'm reminded that God is alive, and in that stark moment, I remember why I'm on the planet. That's why I keep coming to church. Okay, Keep coming to church, keep worshiping Jesus, keep hearing Jesus preached from Scripture. And then, third thing you can do if you want to work on your relationship with God is you can scatter into the real world joining Jesus on his mission and culture to seek and save the lost and working towards the renewal of all things. So you read your word, you gather together with God's people, and then you scatter into the real world to be 
the hands and feet of Jesus in the midst of a culture that needs hope desperately. So in other words, to encapsulate all three of these, respond to what God says. Section 2, verses 2 through 8. Here we see what it looks like to rightly respond to God. So let's see what happens here. Read along with me, verses 2 through 8. So Jacob said to his household, let's go. Let's go. Put away the foreign gods that are among you and purify yourselves and change your garments. Then let us arise and go up to Bethel so that I may make there an altar to the God who answers me in the day of my distress and has been with me wherever I have gone. So they do what he said. They give him all the foreign gods that they had and the rings that were in their ears. And Jacob hid them beneath the terebinth tree that was near Shechem. And as they journeyed, a terror from God fell upon the cities that were around them, so they did not pursue the sons of Jacob. And Jacob came to Luz, he came to Bethel, which is in the land of Canaan, he and the people who were with him, and there he built an altar and called the place El Bethel, because there God had revealed himself to him when he fled from his brother. And Deborah, Rebekah's nurse, died, and she was buried under an oak below Bethel, so he called its name the Crying Tree. So, the big idea here out of verses 2 through 8 is this. I want you to notice what Jacob is doing. I want you to see that Jacob is on his way. Okay, he's on his way. He's going somewhere. Please note that God's people are always going somewhere. Okay, they're always going somewhere. For Jacob, where is he going? He's going to Bethel. What does Bethel mean? Bethel, the house of God. He's going to the house of God. This is beautiful. Where are you going, friend? You are going to the exact same place. You are going to the house of God. Well, Todd, what does the house of God look like? Let me tell you what the house of God looks like. And you missed this. If you missed invocation, Jenny read it, and it was glorious. And I'm going to read the last bit of what she read and the first bit of chapter 22 in the book of Revelation. And I saw no temple in that city. For its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it. For the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. And its gates will never be shut by day and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord their God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. That is a beautiful picture of your home. And why do I read you this beautiful picture of your home? Because you can live an incredibly radical kind of life if you believe that that is really your destiny. Do you see it? I've been reading a book by Shane Claiborne. My wife is helping me to liberalize myself as I get older. So I've been reading this book and he talks about being a radical. And he makes the point that a radical is like a radish. Okay, radical has to do with rootedness. And you can be truly rooted if you believe that that beautiful picture of Zion, of the new Jerusalem, is literally your destiny. But only if you believe it. Right? If you believe that that is your home, well, you'd find within yourself, in light of that great truth, the strength to bring your household with you. Do you see that in the text? 
Jacob brought his whole household with him. Verse 2, receive it. Right? If you believe that that picture of the new Jerusalem is your destiny, you'll be motivated to discard the idolatry that is in your hearts. Still in verse 2. In the Hebrew here, put away the idols that are among you. In the Hebrew, it's literally that are in your hearts. And you know it's true. The false gods that we worship move from the external to the internal, don't they? And that's when it's really insidious. When the love of other gods besides the one true God leak into your actual heart, that's when you're really in trouble. When you see that that new Jerusalem is your future home and you really believe it, you will find yourself able to put away the idolatry that is in your hearts. You'll be able to do like Jacob did. He buried it. You'll be able to bury the idolatry that's in your hearts. And what's beautiful about this is that you won't need to change your clothes. Right? He says to his family, purify yourself and change your clothes. You won't need to change your clothes because um, Jesus has already accomplished this for you. Let me read to you, if I may, the powerful words of Revelation chapter 7, verses 9 through 17. Listen to these words, and most importantly, picture yourself in the midst of this throng. And this I looked and behold. After this, I looked and behold a great multitude. Picture yourself there, which no one could number. From every nation, every tribe and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits upon the throne and unto the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God saying, Amen! Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be unto our God forever and ever. Amen! Then one of the elders addressed me saying, Who are these clothed in white robes and from whence have they come and I said to him sir you know and he said to me these hear it and picture yourself these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb therefore they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple and he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence they shall hunger no more neither thirst any more. the sun shall not strike them nor any scorching heat for the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd Ooh, the one who leaves the 99 to find the one. He sits upon the throne and he will be your shepherd and he will guide them to springs of living water. Come unto me, all ye who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Okay, he will give you streams of living water and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Friend, this is what your Jesus accomplished for you as he hung upon his cross. As he hung there, his shed blood was literally acting like a washing machine, cleansing your garments once and for all. So in Jesus' kingdom, you don't have to do no laundry no more. Woo! Everybody say hallelujah! Right? You don't have to do no laundry no more. You don't have to clean yourself up because Jesus already paid the last visit to the laundromat. Your robes are white. You are fit to join the choir before the Lamb and before God on His throne. You're fit. You belong. There's a place for you in that crowd. This is what Jesus accomplished for you at the cross. Dying in your place for your sin and rising again for your salvation. So you, like Jacob, can face your future and your present and your past with confidence, just like Jacob did as recorded in verse 3. Let us arise and go up to Bethel so that I may make, there's the future reference, so that I may make there an altar to the God 
who answers me, there's the present reference, in the day of distress, and has been, there's the past reference, with me wherever I have gone. Let me give you one quick note on the present, if I may. It ain't pretty. The present ain't pretty. How do I know? The text tells me so. Who answers me, hear it, in the day of my distress. Verse 3, part B. Don't you wish God would deliver you from the day of distress? Like, Lord, why do I have to suffer? Why does life always have to be so hard? It is his pleasure to lead you through the valley of the shadow of death. It is his pleasure to lead you through the day of distress. Walking with God does not mean you will avoid all trouble. Walking with God means that he will walk with you through all trouble. So in light of this, bury your old way of life. Receive it. Bury your old way of life. Verse 4. That's what Jacob does with the idols of his household. He buries them. Isn't it beautiful to see that even amongst these chosen people, there's a whole bunch of idols in the household? There's room for us too. There's room for us too. These crazy, they got so many idols in the household. It's not like one or two. There's so many that has to bury them in the ground. But what happens when we bury something in the ground? It begins to rot, and eventually what happens? It passes away. Bury your old way of life. Just bury it. Because of what Jesus has done for you. So point number two, you're from Eden, you're going to Zion, you want to live like it? Respond to God. And watch how Emmanuel shows up. Verse five. As they journeyed, a terror from God fell upon the cities that were around them so that they did not pursue the sons of Judah. If you've read your Old Testament, that sounds very familiar. You're like, God's people are traveling, and a terror from God travels with them. The reason it sounds familiar is because this is not the first time it happens with God and his people. It happens later in their history. In fact, it's recorded by Moses in Deuteronomy chapter 2, verse 25, quoting God. Beginning today, I will make people throughout the earth terrified because of you. When they hear reports about you, they will tremble with dread and fear. Now, let me say something about our enemies. Okay, let me say something very important about our enemies. Unlike the ancient Jews, the Amorites are not our enemies. Okay, in the original context, Deuteronomy is a history book. Okay, it's looking back to the original events. So the events that Deuteronomy 2 are looking back to record Israel's conquest of the region where the Amorites lived. Unlike the ancient Jews, the Amorites are not your enemy. I would dare say, as a gospel preacher who loves Jesus and loves you, that you don't have any enemies. No man, no woman is your enemy. Satan, sin, death, and hell, along with all their works, are, and in Christ, you know what's coming, those of you who are saints, you are already more than conquerors. Hashtag Romans 8, baby. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any 
charged against God's elect. It is God who justifies. Who is it to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of God in Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure, I am certain, receive it, church, and declare it for yourself, that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor anything present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Somebody say amen. This is your destiny, friend. Nothing can touch you. Nothing can hurt you. Nothing can break you. You don't need to live in fear anymore if you belong to Jesus. Never again do you need to live in fear or despair any longer if you belong to Jesus. Where are you headed? You're headed towards a very good time because you're about to see God face to face. Section 3, verses 9 through 13. This is exactly what happens. What happens here? God shows up and he's like a personal trainer. This is for Tim and for Nikki. I wrote this thing about you. He's like a personal trainer. He always adds weight. He always adds weight. You figure you get like the one benchmark and you go to the next. What is weight, biblically? Weight is glory. God shows up and he adds weight. He is always upping the ante. This is what happens here with Jacob. God shows up face to face. He gives him a new name. And then he gives him a command that is an echo of Eden. He ups the ante. Verse 11, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you, and kings shall come from your own body. Who's the nation? Israel. Who's the company of nations? The Gentiles. Us. Grafted into God's family by the work of Jesus. Who's Jesus? The king prophesied to come and arise from Abraham's line. As we are in Christ, we are the more makers. Be fruitful and multiply. As you are in Christ, you are the more maker. Point number three, you're from Eden. You're going to Zion. You want to live like it? So because God is always upping the ante, never get too cozy. Never think to yourself, it's enough, we're good. We're good, we're good. No, 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 no. God always adds weight. Never get too cozy, which of course means, point number four, remembering what God has done, like Jacob and his altar in verses 14 through 15. That's what he's doing with this stone altar that he pours wine and oil on. It's a physical commemoration. He's remembering what God has done. So remember what God has done, and then get busy living. Why? Because point number five, life goes on. Life goes on. You're from Eden. You're going to Zion. You want to live like it? Life goes on. Things continue to happen. So as things continue to happen, hear me now, church, Choose life in the midst of death. This is what happens in verse 18. Rachel's giving birth to her last son, and she's dying. It's a hard labor, and as she's about to die, the midwife says, don't despair, for you've had another son. But she is full of despair, and the name she wants to give to her son reflects her despair. She wants to call her son Ben-Oni, the son of my sorrow, the son of my sadness, the son of my misery, the son of my pain, Ben-Oni. But her husband, the patriarch, who is standing there at at her side, says, no, 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 dear. We will call him the son of my right hand, the son of my victory, the son of promise, Ben-Yamin. In the midst of death, you choose 
life. You want to live like you're from Eden and going to Zion? Celebrate every ounce of life you experience even in the midst of death. Y'all heard me? Even in the midst of death, sweet John Atkinson died last week. He went to see Jesus. I was with him several hours before he did. He's a 93-year-old saint who used to sit right there. And he'd sit right there and he'd sing to Jesus and he'd cry during the preaching and he'd grab me afterwards and he'd say, keep doing what you're doing, I love it. So I went to see him in the hospital and he's dying. His family's there and they're crying. I stay with him for a couple hours. You know what I do? I'm about to leave him, I have to go pick up my kids. I wanted to be there with him when he died, but I wasn't going to be able to be there. I had to leave. So I put my knee on his skinny 93-year-old knee. He's not doing no squats no more. Put my hand on his knee. I smile and I say, John, have a great night. You're in for a whale of a time. I wish I was you. And his whole family smiled and started laughing. And then I walked out. And he did die that night. And I am envious of him as he stands in Jesus' presence celebrating the glory of God and of the Lamb. Friend, celebrate life even in the midst of death. Life goes on, so you might as well enjoy it. You might as well enjoy it. Yeah, I mean, life goes on. Sometimes your son might end up sleeping with your concubine. I don't know. Reuben in verse 22. Jacob deals with it later. So that might not happen to you, but you're going to have trouble. Right? Could you testify that you're going to have trouble? So keeping this in mind, particularly keeping Jesus in mind, don't miss this point, you might as well smile. You might as well put a smile on. You know the only one who wins when you allow yourself to be miserable in the midst of trouble? The devil. He's happy about that. But you don't win when you allow your trouble to steal your joy. And if your Jesus is real, and if Zion is your home, even in the midst of death itself, you have no cause to despair, friend. You have no cause to despair. So the first time trouble comes your way this week, put on your happy smile and face it with Jesus' help, believing in your future with Jesus as his friend in his city. Because you know that one day things will come full circle. This is what happens in verses 27 through 29. And worship team, you can join me because I'm done. Here we see in 27 through 29, Isaac's story coming to an end. Life will come full circle. Jacob came to his father Isaac at Mamre, or Kiliat Arba, that is Hebron, where Abraham and Isaac had sojourned. Now the days of Isaac were 180 years, and Isaac breathed his last, and he died and was gathered to his people, old and full of days. And his sons Esau and Jacob buried him. Isaac's chapter closes, and let me add, it closes really really well. And Isaac breathed his last and he died and was gathered to his people, old and full of days. I cannot wait to be gathered to my people. I miss my grandfathers. I miss them. Grandpa Kerr died when I was 14. I miss him. I can't wait to see him. Grandpa Canelon died three years ago at 92 years of age. I can't wait to see him. I can't wait to see John Atkinson. I can't wait to see Robbie, my brother-in-law. I can't wait to see him. 
Can't wait to see Moses. He's going to whoop me and tell me how many times I misinterpreted his words in Genesis. Can't wait to see Jacob and have him say, good job, my wife's word driving me crazy. Can't wait to meet Rachel and have her say, you were a little too hard on the ladies. The men were very difficult to deal with in my age. I cannot wait to be gathered to my people. I cannot wait to be gathered to my people. Judaism has a very beautiful view of death. We are grafted into Judaism by the work of God in Christ. So look at it the same way. Anticipate with relish the day when you get to go home and in the meantime fill your life up because Isaac died old and full of years full of years in the Hebrew here the implication is he died satisfied fill your life up baby that's how you want your life to go the last thing you want to do is to die empty you want to die old and full so get busy living and then because you're from Eden and you're going to Zion and you want to live like it the story will continue as the next chapter begins and his sons Esau and Jacob buried him his sons Esau and Jacob did what needed doing why because they are the future you are the future. So next time you're at a cocktail party and someone asks you where you're from or where you're going or what you do, you tell them you're from Eden, you're going to Zion, and then do this. Ask them if they want to come. <laughs>